Welcome to the Foundry Church Podcast, helping you to forge a lifelong reliance on God. To find out more about the Foundry Church or how to get involved, visit us at thefoundrychurch.com. Tell you this morning about a boy that was born a long, long time ago in a place that is pretty far away. This boy was born into a country that was long oppressed by a ruler who had absolutely no respect for anybody. He just simply ruled by force. He ruled his nation and this other nation by force. Right? And this ruler forced this boy's people into, into slavery. He took their, their livestock, and he also took their women. Right? And at a very young age, this boy's father was killed by people representing and carrying out the dictates of just this evil ruler. After this, this boy's father died, the boy went to go live with his uncle. And now the, the boy's uncle, he lived in a different country. He lived in a, another country completely different from the, the one that the ruler had control over. And he had it much better. His uncle taught him about the, the nation of his birth. Uh, his uncle explained their culture. He educated him and he, he gave him what he needed. Right? He even taught him the art of war. And so having come of age, this little boy becomes a man with a, a newfound knowledge, right? And this boy, who's becoming a man, returns to the nation of his birth. He re- returns to the nation of his birth as a man. He returns to the nation of oppression as a man. The nation that killed his father, he returns to it as a man. Right? And, and what happens next is a little bit of a surprise, right? Through a, a series of events and having seen the unjust system of government continue, he becomes a very unlikely ruler, uh, unlikely leader, right? A leader seeking uh, to set right the many wrongs that the people were experiencing, a, a leader looking to influence his people, a leader who, with the powers of, uh, of just might and, and right, inspires his nation to do the right thing and to carry out uh, the battle to those who would seek to keep them from freedom, from, from righteousness, from, from living their lives. Now listen, this, this guy, he encouraged them, his fellow countrymen, to fight for their rights, to, to bring down this evil ruler, this, this king, and to restore their freedom. Right? This, this man became his nation's hero, and some of you know who I am talking about, right? since his movie was on TV this week. Right? William Wallace, right? right? Surprise, right? William Wallace, right? Braveheart, right? And I hear some of you going, yeah, right? All right, yes, my favorite movie, some grunts from you manly men out there, right? For, for some of you who uh, are not in the know, or, or if you're like my uncultured wife, right, this story, right? She doesn't like Braveheart. She doesn't like Braveheart. All right, but if you don't know, right, this story, or at least the Hollywood version of this story, is the movie Braveheart. Right? The, the story that I, I just kind of set there, right? 
It's one of the, in my opinion, one of the greatest movies ever made and one of the greatest stories that are out there, right? William Wallace's story is one built on, on epic battles, on, on crazy attempts to restore what was right, right? There, there are those who thought William Wallace's efforts on behalf of his people were just plain crazy, just just out there, right? Not realistic by any chance, right? But those following him, right, following William Wallace were inspired by his, his vision to do whatever it took to restore freedom, right, and to bring restoration. Now, listen, let's think of it like this, right? Since the, the dawn of time, it seems that we have been fascinated by stories of, of men and stories of, of women who had to overcome, right? I mean, think about it, right? The men and women who had to, to fight or to claw their, their way, to find victory, to, to battle for their community, to battle for their families, their country, for what was right and what is true, Right? We love to hear these stories like Braveheart and William Wallace or, or the, the movie Gladiator or the, or the Patriot or really anything that, that Tom Selleck is in, right? We love those stories, but for some reason, right, for some reason, a, a story just like those, right, just like those movies and those shows that we love to watch, a story like this has often gone past our view, has often escaped our, our, our presence, a story that we find in our Bibles, right? It's about a, a little-known man found in the Old Testament book of Judges. And that's where we're going to find ourselves today. Right? In the last week of our sermon series, New Phone, Who Dis, we've been looking at the small characters in Scripture uh, who can teach us some very big truths, Right? some big truths, but we often miss them because they're small characters and their stories are very small. They don't take up many pages in our Bible, right? And if they were on our contact list and if we got a new phone and we made that data transfer, they're characters that may not make that transfer, right? That's what we mean, right? And so if they text us, we would have to reply, new phone, who's this, Right? That's what we're looking at today. And today's character is found in the Old Testament book of Judges. So that is where we are. And to provide some context before we get there, I want you to look at it like this. Right? The, the book of Judges takes place after Joshua, who we've preached on many times here. Right? And one of Moses' generals has led the Israelites into the promised land. All right, so the book of Judges takes place after Joshua leads the Israelites into this promised land. And, and this continues into the coronation of their first king, King Saul. All right, that's the context of the book of Judges. All right, the, the title of the book of Judges can be a, a, just a little deceiving. All right, judges during this time were not what we picture today. Right? These, these judges that we, we look at in Scripture, they're not like Judge Joe Brown, who claims to be the restorer of manhood and the protector of womanhood, or like the uh, Judge Judy that we watch in the afternoon when we're at home sick, right? right? These are not the judges that we're talking about. Right? Judges during this time were deliverers. Right? Right, take a look. They were this. They were someone... Right, man or woman who God called to step up, to stand in the gap, to free their people. Right? That's what the judges were. 
a man or a woman who was called by God to step it up, to stand in the gap and to free their people. They were men and women who followed God and his teaching. Right? So the book of Judges has a clear cycle that the Israelites follow. A very clear cycle. First, the Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord. All right? They do something wrong. They do, they do everything wrong. Right? They do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then the cycle continues with their oppression. Right? They, they, are, they are beaten down and they are forced to serve their oppressor in some manner. And that leads them to cry out. To, to, to call for repentance and to cry out to God, and God raises up a deliverer, right? A judge to help them get back on track. And the story that we want to look at today, today's small character, uh, starts in chapter 3 of Judges, verses 12, right? At the beginning of this cycle. So go ahead and turn there. If you, if you don't have a Bible, you can use the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. Go ahead and use those. They are for you to take. You can have them. They are free. They're for you to have, to give away, to keep. We're going to be in Judges chapter 3. And as you're turning there, you can also download the Foundry Burke app. It's a free app at your favorite app store. It takes a few seconds. And there's a Bible tab on there. You click that Bible tab, and Judges chapter 3 is already pulled up there for you. All right, we're going to start in, in verse 12. It says this. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, right? That cycle, right? And the Lord gave, the, gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Amalekites as allies, and then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of, of Palms, and the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years, right? Keep your finger Right there. Right? The, the Israelites, like we said, have sinned against God. Right? They, they have sinned against God, and they are, are delivered into the hands of this king. They are oppressed for a long 18 years, and then, as often as they do, right, they cry out to God. Right? They cry out to God, and God delivers to them an unlikely leader, Ehud. Right? Now, much like William Wallace, Ehud was a man with special skills. Really, he's more like the man or the father from the movie Taken. Right? Right? You guys know what I'm talking about if you've seen that movie. Right? Right, verse 15. Look at verse 15 real quick. All right, it says this. All right, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, part of that cycle, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Elon of Moab. All right, keep your finger there. Now we notice, all right, we notice that Ehud right, was left-handed. Right, he's left-handed, right? Is there anyone in here that's left-handed? Right, anybody? All right, there's a few. All right, good. All right, if you're watching online, you can put, put that in the comments, but there's a few of us, right? Not me. I don't know why I said us. All right, there's a few of you. All right, you know, it wasn't too long ago that children that were born left-handed uh, were, were forced to actually write with their right hand because being left-handed was, uh, was considered abnormal. 
right? And to some people, it was even considered evil, right? My, my dad is left-handed, and he's of a particular generation that, that he actually has scars on his left hand, right? Because every time he tried to write with his left hand, his teacher, and he would tell you that his teacher's name was Miss Angel, she would hit him, she would hit him with a ruler, with the metal side of a ruler, and so he had scars across his knuckle, right? And he would say that she would call them Miss Angel's love taps. That's crazy time, crazy time. Now, like Miss Angel, right, many of us, we could look at the fact that Ehud was left-handed, and, and we can see it as a weakness or, or maybe something uh, below average, but we can't miss this, all right? This is important, right? It says that Ehud is the son of a Benjamite, right? And this is an important detail that we can't just gloss over, right? Because this one fact changes everything. Right, real quick, I'm going to take us to another section of Scripture in the book of Judges where we get to hear what a Benjamite was like. Right? Chapter 20, if you want to, want to turn there. Chapter 20, verses 15. All right, says this. In all, 26,000 of their warriors armed with swords arrived in Giba to join the 700 elite troops who lived there. Among Benjamin's elite troops, 700 were left-handed, and each of them could sling a rock and hit a target within a hair's breadth without missing. All right? Well, let me give you some context here. All right? These 700, le- the 700 left-handed men were like the SEALs or the, the Delta forces of their day. Right? And SEALs are just plain crazy. Right? I have a friend, and when we were both in college, I went to a little college in Kentucky, and he went to the Naval Academy. Right? A little different. And at the Naval Academy, he had to pick where he did some training during the summers, and he thought he had what it took to be a SEAL. I hope he's watching. <laughs> right? He thought he had what it took. And so one of those summers, he was doing this training in the swamps of somewhere down south. I forget where it was. And he had to live in these Vietnam-era tents with all of his other cadets. And, and their instructor was a SEAL himself. And they lived in these, these old tents with dirt floors. And they were there for weeks in this, this, this swampy area of the country and doing training and exercises. And, and they finally got a night off. Finally got a night off. And it was also an important fact to notice that it was the first night off for the actual instructor as well. right? Because he was with them the whole time. And so they were excited to go out and to, to have a break, but they were also dealing with, with rodents getting into their tent, getting into their stuff. Um, and so the instructor, the actual Navy SEAL, stayed behind. And when they got back from their night of debauchery, of their night of fun, right, they found that actual Navy SEAL, that instructor, lying on the floor of the tent with peanut butter on him. And he was catching the mice with his bare hands. And that is when my friend realized, I don't want to be a seal. <laughs> right? Right? He said, I don't want to be a seal. These guys are crazy, right? right? These guys are at a different level, right? And that's what we're talking about with these 700 men, right? These, these left-handed warriors. They had special skills. They were willing to do the, the extra, right? right? And guess what the secret weapon of Ehud's special force was, right? It's left-handed. 
right? Like most left-handed people, including my dad and probably all those of you that raised your hand, you could do many more things right-handed than right-handed people can do left-handed, right? You're a little bit more ambidextrous, right? And these soldiers, like I said, they could hit a, a, a very small target with a, a sling with either hand. Right, these Benjamites were the special ops of their time, and Ehud right, was one of these men, was a part of this lineage. His dad was one of those original 700. He was trained by his father, just like William Wallace was trained by his uncle. Right, it would be like being born the son of Rocky. Right? You would know a thing or two about boxing, right? and that's what Ehud is. Right? He knows a thing or two about warfare about battle, about strategy. And so with these special skills, Ehud came to his people. Right? And when he saw that there was a need, just like William Wallace saw that there was a need, he showed up and he stood up and he stood in the gap. Right? Ehud was sick of the oppression. He wanted to do something about it. And so he came up with a plan. Let's look back there in the original chapter, chapter 3, verses 16 through 20, where we 21, where we left off. It says, so, it says this, So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh. That's important because when they're padded down into the kingdom, they always looked for swords on the left side, because if you're right-handed, right? So it's important, right? He had it on this side, right? So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. And after delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgag, he turned back. He came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. Right, so the king commanded his servants, be quiet. And he sent them all out of the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. As Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, and he plunged it right into the king's belly. All right, keep it right there. Keep your finger right there. Right, this, is, this is great, right? I mean, come on, right? This is, this is like the next Hollywood movie, right? How have they not made a movie about this yet? This is awesome, right? Ehud went to the palace pretending to be giving this gift to this greedy and fat king, right? The, the king was obviously living the life, right? He had a lot of food, right? He was fat. That was, they made a point of, of telling us that. I mean, listen, the king's name, Eglon, which in the original language is literally translated as cow. Right? The movie is just writing itself at this point. Right? The script is right here. Right? So this cow was at his summer palace with a beautiful upper room, a room that was outside with this, with this nice breeze. Right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm picturing a man lounging on the, the roof with, with someone feeding him grapes and, and someone fanning him with, with palm branches, and then in walks Ehud. He takes one look around. He knows exactly how to get this guy. He offers him a secret. He offers him a secret, something the king wanted for himself and that he could not get anywhere else. His greed got the best of him. 
Like it, like it says in Proverbs chapter 15, the greedy bring ruin to their households, but the one who hates bribes will live. Right? right? So the, the king sent away all of his attendants, and he's probably drooling, right? He's, he's chomping at the, at the bit to get this important and special secret. And Ehud adds the the little cherry on the top. And he says, this message is not just any ordinary secret. In fact, it's a message from God, right? Not the the gods, those idols out there on the street that I passed, but, but, but the God of gods, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, right? Take a look. This is what he says. This is the God, the, the, it's Elohim, he says, Right, the, the secret is coming from Elohim, the Lord Almighty, uh, the one God, the true God, the capital G, God. Well, right, the, 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 the king is probably thinking now, I'm something special. Right? I'm something special. God, right? Elohim has a message for me. Of course he does, right? Look how, how amazing I am, he's thinking to himself. And so the, the king, he, he leans in. To hear this important message, and, and the message was delivered with a double-edged sword right into the king's belly, right? Probably in slow motion, right? <laughs> this is crazy. It's a great story. It's amazing, right? The, the strike with the sword was perfect, and we would expect nothing else from a special forces warrior, would we? Right, let, let's just see what happens after he delivers this message from Elohim, right? the, the one true God. Look at verses 22 through 25. It says, The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared. Right? It went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels erupted. Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. After Ehud was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room, and so they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and they got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. Right, the, the sword rang true. Right? It went straight into the king, right? rupturing his bowels and making the king lose everything that was inside of him and hiding the murder weapon, right? To the guards, it made it make it seem like he was just relieving himself, that he was doing his daily constitution. And I can only assume that the, the king's attendants knew of the king's greed. Right? They knew of the king's greed and probably his pride, as they usually go hand in hand. And so they left him to his own devices, so to say, and, and they, they waited, and they waited, and they waited, until the point of embarrassment, to the point where the, the smell was so strong, it became a little awkward. And let's read what happens when they finally get the guts to go in and see. Oh, you guys see what I did there? <laughs> get the guts. All right. Verse 26. All right, verse 26. It says, while the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, right? Uh, passing the stone idols on his way out of uh, Sari. When he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud uh, sounded a call to arms, and then uh, led a band of Israelites down from the hills 
He said, follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him, and the Israelites took control of the shallow crossing of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites, and they killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied warriors. None of them escaped. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was, was peace in the land for 80 years. Right. Now, I think, I, I think about, about it like, like William Wallace and Ehud, they weren't that different, were they? Right? They weren't that much different. Ehud used a, a double-edged sword that he made and gave his people freedom. He gave his people courage, right? And he gave his people uh, hope. Right, William Wallace, if you've seen the movie, has this amazing sword. It's huge, and it is also double-bladed. His, his sword is used skillfully to inspire the people of Scotland to overtake England, or at least give it the old college try. Right? His, his sword brings his people freedom and, and restores a nation. Ehud's sword is perfect. Right? It's, it's perfect for hiding from the guards. It's perfect for killing uh, this king. It inspires his people to gain their freedom, to find peace, and to gain land. Right? Now, lean in, Foundry. Right? This, this is where it all comes together. You've you got to get a hold of this. We've got to hold this tight. Because I told all of you this, right? That story. We, we looked at this story so we can be reminded of this point, right? Just as, as, as William Wallace and Ehud have something in common, we, as special forces, warriors for God, have something in common with them as well. Listen, we are called to share something in common with them. Take a look. A sword, Right? Right, just like they had swords, we have a sword as well. Scripture tells us that we have a double-edged sword too. That we have been armed by our leader. And not just a, a little sword, like a, a letter opener sword. But a sword better than William Wallace's and better than Ehud's sword. Right, listen to what it says in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says this. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our, our innermost thoughts and desires. That's our sword. Right now, now don't tune out just because I'm not going to hand out actual swords today. <laughs> right? I, I thought that would be awesome, but... It turned out to be a little pricey, and we have a roofer coming this week, so everyone I asked said, nah, probably not the smartest idea, <laughs> right? But listen, this right here, this is our sword. Our Bible is our sword. It is living. It is powerful. It's an amazing thing, right? William Wallace had a sword that was finally crafted, but, but by men, our double-edged sword was crafted by the all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present Lord of creation. Our sword. Right? It can show us and, and teach us how to fight battles. Fight in any battle. How to win in any war. How to triumph over everything. Because it is written by our God. The God that we're forging our life on. 
And we read and we understand it by his powerful spirit that is in us, that is active. And that is the big truth that Ehud shows us. We wield a finely crafted sword created to fight and, and win the greatest battles ever. And this is how we fight. Right? The, this is how we fight. First, right, we fight by getting to the guts of the problem and killing it. Right? We, we fight by getting down to the guts of the problem and killing it. It's just a simple question here. Right? Do you know what swords are used for? I mean, what, what are swords used for? Killing. Right? They are used for killing. Now, if swords are for killing and the, the word of God is the greatest sword ever, then we should be killing something, right? <laughs> and what is that? Right? Well, the truth is the, the sword is not for killing people. Obviously, that is one of the big ten, right? Can't do that. But we're called to put something to death with the sword. Our fears, our worries, our distractions, our sinful nature, all of that, right? John Owen once said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So how do we use the word of God to kill this sin or, or this missing of the mark? And remember, sin is just an archery term, right? Sin is an archery term, meaning that you missed the bullseye. Right? So, so how do we, we, we kill whatever distracted us, whatever got in our way, whatever is taking us from forging a life on God or making us forge our life on, on everything but God? Right? In the, the story of, of Ehud, he plunged the sword deep into the belly of the king. He fought the king by getting into the guts, literally, of the problem, Right? Well, the, the writer of Hebrews, like we read, said that the word of God is like dividing joints and, and marrow. Right? Joints are, are thick and hard. The outer part of the bone, marrow, is the, the, the soft, tender, living inner part of the bone. Meaning that the, the, the word of God is like a sword that is sharp enough to, to cut right through the outer and hard and, and tough part of the bone into the, the inner, soft, living part of the bone. Right? It cuts through the, the shell. Right? It gets to the, the heart of the matter. It reveals us, uh, to us, our true selves, doesn't it? Right? One of my, my favorite ministers said it like this. A sword with two edges has no blunt side. Right? It, it cuts both this way and that way. He says the revelation of God given us in the Holy Scripture is, is edge of a sword all over. It is alive in every part, and every, and every part keen to cut to the conscience, a wound of the heart, and the difficulty with some men's heart is to get at them, but the word of God will go through anything. It's that sharp. Right, man? Foundry Church. Right? That is how we kill sin. Distraction and fear and, and worry or whatever, right? We use uh, the sword of the Spirit to get to the guts of the issue, right? We got to quit playing games and we got to get killing, right? That's what, that's what we're reading here. Sin is not a surface issue. 
Our worries are not a surface issue. Our, the distractions in our life are not a surface issue. Our fears are not a surface issue. It's deep down in us. It is in our guts. And it is going to take a pretty powerful and sharp double-edged sword to cut it out. It's not just a decoration that we hold. Right? It's not just a, a decoration in our home. This is, this is not one of those swords that the queen uses to knight people with. Right? The word of God is used to kill sin, to cut to the core, to pull it from the core of our being and to destroy it. And how? Right? And that's the, the second thing that, <laughs> that Ehud teaches us. Like, Look, we kill sin with the promises of God. We kill worry with the promises of God. We kill stress with the promises of God. We kill the distractions in our life for being the best husbands and fathers and mothers and, and wives and, and children and friends and church members and community members. Whatever's distracting us from that, from living our best life, a life that is forged on God, we kill it with the promises of his word. It's right here, right? As we, as we started reading today, I, I, I talked about the the cycle of judges, right? The Israelites would do evil, right? Then they, they, they became oppressed. They would cry out to God, and then God would deliver them through one of these judges, right? Why do, why do we think that the Israelites kept crying out to God, right? That's where my mind keeps landing when I read through judges, Right? Well, it's because they knew that the God that they're forging their life on, and admittedly, sometimes they're struggling at that, just like we do, right? They knew that his promises were there, that they could, they could recall those promises, that they could be there and hold those promises, right? God had promised the Israelites that they would be his people and he would be their God no matter what. And so no matter how many times they screwed up, no matter how many times they ran in the completely wrong direction, no matter how many times he kept showing up, right? He kept his promises. He really did, right? He sent a deliverer every time. When we read through Judges, you'll, you'll hear a lot and a lot and a lot of stories like Ehud's. Right? Heck, right, right there at the end of chapter 3 is another judge that we hear about, another deliverer. It goes on and on because the people knew the promises of God. Right? They, they knew the word of God. And all the way to Jesus. Right? The, the Israelites cried out to God. Please re remember, God, your promise. Right? Please re remember what you said. Right? All the way to Jesus. And now when, when we mess up, we can hold up the sword and, and we can cry out to God, remember uh, the victory. Right? Re re remember your promises. Right? We, have, we have sinned. We have done evil. We are distracted. We have things weighing us down and, and worries. We can't, we can't see the, the, the truth that you are there for us. But we can remember those promises. We can read those promises. And we know that there is hope for our restoration. We can say, please save us. Right? This is how we destroy these things. We get to the heart of what the issue really is, and we kill it with the promises of God. Listen, right? Maybe, maybe you, you're, you're, you have one thing in your life that's telling you to do this, 
you got to remember uh, the promises of God, where God says that, uh, that he puts to, to death all of that, right? right? Where, where um, someone might be saying, you got to do A, B, and C, and you're thinking, that's just not the right, the right thing. Right? You can remember what it says in 1 John chapter 4, where it, says, where it says, the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. Right? You, you, might, you might have this fear that says, that says what if? Right, what if this happens? Right, what if this happens at work? What if this happens to my family? What if this, what if this just comes into the home? What if this is going to destroy us? Or what if, what if, what if? Right? We're, we're, we're saying that. We can remember the promise in Isaiah 41 where it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Take away those what ifs. We got worry. It starts to surface. Right? We get worried about our kids starting school. We're worrying about a new job. We're worrying about this stress and this bill and this check and, and whatever, right? And we can remember what it says in John chapter 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. When we go to that and we look at that and we read that, we're wielding the sword. Peace, he says. Man, I struggle with that. I do. I worry. Right? But I can go to John 14 and I can read, Peace I leave with you. He's saying, my peace I give to you. Man, I can hold on to that, right? I can can kill some things in the guts of my soul with that, right? When when doubt and and frustration are just golfing and and scoffing at us, right? We can can go to Mark chapter 10, and and we're thinking, what are we doing? Is it the right thing? We can read, they'll never change, Right? Right? This is a, a waste of time, right? Jesus looks us in the eye and he responds. When people are saying that to us, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible with God. So when people are saying, that's not possible, you're crazy for forging your life on God. All things are possible with him. Right, so this, this sword is not just a book. It, it is a living and breathing thing that has the, the power to, to dig down deep and separate out that worry, that fear, the sin, and destroy it with the promises of God. And real quickly, the last thing that Ehud's story teaches us is this. Fighting a battle can be downright messy. Right? Think about it. It can be downright messy, right? Now, you don't think I was just going to gloss over the part of the story. Right? Where the where the guards thought the king was going to the bathroom. Right, there's something to be learned there. Right, even, even from the, the smell of one man's guts laying all over the floor, ruptured, ruptured bowels, as it said, it is true, fighting a battle can be messy. There is nothing worse than, than watching a huge like, fight scene in a movie or a huge car chase like in a show, and the main character emerges without a scratch on him, Right? There's no dents in the car, right? Or, or, or like their hair is perfect, right? right? It ruins it. It's not realistic. It's not true, right? Fighting. It's messy work. 
It's smelly work even. It can sometimes be gross work. And that is no different when we're fighting the battles against worry and stress and, and sin in our own lives. And that is how we can change, right? We've got to start by fighting the war that is within us. That's how we change the world. You see, when we practice with our sword, when we, we learn the promises that are here of God and we work on getting to the heart of the issues, we might get cut. There might be a little bit of blood on our shirt. Not just a, a nick or a little bit of a slash, but downright cut to the core. And we will reveal our own stench, just like that king of Moab. If we're doing it right. And because... That stuff that we're trying to kill, it's stinky, right? It's messy. That's why we're trying to kill it. We're trying to get it out, right? If we're honest, we know this. We know that when our worries or, 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 or concerns and our stresses, or our, our sin is revealed and laid bare, it is not a pretty sight or particularly good smelling one either. Right? Think about it, Right? Right, the, the prophet Isaiah even describes um, the, the sinning Israelites in that uh, cycle as rotten. Right? He even says it's rotten, like the smell of, of rotten eggs. And if I'm honest with myself, I know that sometimes I feel that I, I smell so bad that God gets embarrassed with me. I, I think that, right? Just like the, the servants were for the king. I, I sometimes feel like I am so much like that king that I smell so bad that no one can come around me. I, I tend to think that I smell so, uh, so bad that I can't even touch the sword that God has given me, let alone pick it up and yield it as a special ops soldier for, for the Lord. But that's when we go back to the, the promises, right? When I'm overwhelmed by my own stank, I'm reminded that our commander is Elohim, the one true God, the Lord Almighty. And that Jesus, our, our commander, our captain, he's a captain who came and he died for us. He sacrificed himself for us. And he made me smell like roses, literally. I mean, listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In the message paraphrase, it says this, In the Messiah, in Christ, God leads us from place to place in one perpetual victory parade. It's a wonderful thought. Right? Through us, he brings the knowledge of Christ everywhere we go. People breathe in the exquisite fragrance. He took the stank. And when we're out here being his hands and his feet, when we're forging our life on him, people are breathing in an exquisite fragrance that comes from him. Because of Christ, we give off a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those on the way of salvation, an aroma redolent with life. Continues, it says, but those on the way to destruction treat us more like, like the, the stench from a rotting corpse. This is a, a terrific responsibility. Is anyone competent to take it on? No. But at least we don't take God's word, water it down, and, take, uh, and, and then take it to the streets to sell it uh, cheaply. 
Right? We stand in Christ's presence when we speak. God looks us in the face. We get what we say straight from God, and it says it as honestly as we can. He makes us smell wonderful. I said, so do the work. Right? Get, get, get messy. Right? Reveal the, the brokenness, because in the end, we know that when we come to God not smelling all that good, not smelling great, we can still forge our life daily on him. That he's going to take that stink from us. That we don't have to wear deodorant and we don't have to bring a bottle of Febreze because Jesus has a new stench for us. Right? The, the stench of victory. Right? As, the, as the band comes up today, I want to close with a story about Bobby Bowden. Now, you know that college game day is the first first one was yesterday, so All right, I'm still in that football mindset. College game day started back up yesterday, and, and as you guys know, I was going to end with a football illustration because of college game day. Now, Bobby uh, Bowden uh, spent 34 seasons as the head coach of Florida State, and while he was there, he won 12 ACC championships, uh, it's ACC, so, and two national championships, 93 and 99, right? He would have won two more if it wasn't for two field goals, they said. One ride right and one ride left, and that's just terrible feeling. All right, the the F, FSU Seminoles finished in the top five of the final AP poll for a record 14 consecutive seasons, they said, from 1987 to 2000 under his leadership. But, but this, well, this is not what people talked about when he passed away earlier this month or a couple months ago. Sure, right, those, those things were mentioned, but what they really talked about was his faith, right? right? This is what his son had to say. Every morning at 5.30, 5 o'clock, he gets up, he gets his Bible, right, his sword, right? He gets all his study books, his study guides, usually four or five of them, and then he goes through the process every morning of reading. I like how he says he goes through the process, right, like training, practice, Right? Every morning, Coach Bowden started his day by practicing with his sword. He did the work. Every morning, he dove deep. He got to the guts of his own issues and killed uh, the sin problem, the worry problem, the distraction problem with the promises of God so that he could change the world, so he could be the hands and the feet of, of Jesus in the part of the kingdom where he was, was assigned by God as he's forging his life on him. Every day he fought the fight. And one of the the last things his son said about him was this. It says this. He wanted to coach as long as he could to advance the kingdom of God. He's 91 and he's going down swinging. He's taken as many people as he can to heaven with him. Guys, that's what Ehud shows us, right? If you're going to go down, go down swinging with a sword and take as many people to heaven with you as possible. That's it. That's our command, right? That's how we live. We live our best life, not the easiest life, not necessarily the prettiest life. We live our best life, a life that is forged on God. Let's stand. Let's worship through song one more time. Let's give honor to our commander, to our king, who gives us the tools and the promises to to split the bones, to get to the guts of the issues.
so that we can change the world by starting with changing ourselves. Let's worship this amazing God.